Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Judgment Call Podcast. As always, this is Miles Wilson, and I appreciate you if you are tuning in today. And I only have about two topics for you today. So I have combine takeaways for you. And I know a lot of people just don't care about the draft as much as I do. Don't care about a bunch of six-foot dudes running 40-yard dashes. I know you don't. So I'm going to start with the second topic today, and that is the Milwaukee Bucks playing in Miami two nights ago. Actually, it was yesterday night because I was watching it while I was in the gym. I usually listen to music while I'm in the gym, but I was watching the game because I, I wanted to watch this game. I've been waiting. So I'm, this one, talk about this first. I have been waiting for a long, long time. I've been waiting all year to finally talk about this Bucks team without sounding like the world's biggest hater. I've, I've been trying. I have good self-discipline. I've been trying not to just look at this team and say, Oh yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying not to overreact and say, "Oh, this this 52 and a record is fantastic." What they're doing is we've never seen before. This team is going to go on to the finals because if you know me, I don't think that at all. I love Giannis Antetokounmpo. He is my favorite player in the league, and it's hard for me to have a favorite player in 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 the NBA because my favorite players list is all over the place. My three favorite players of all time are Jason Williams, Gerald Green, and J.R. Smith. Don't ask me why. Just growing up, they had some of the most exciting plays to watch on TV and they just I just like their style of play. So having a superstar in my top five favorite players of all time is wild. But Giannis is in that category for me. But I've been waiting to talk about this Bucks team for who they are without sounding like a hater. And after this Miami game is the perfect time. And it's because the Milwaukee Bucks are one of the most flawed 50 plus win teams ever at this certain point in the season, because I'm not sure how many teams have been 50 plus wins at this stage in the season ever. And Miami showed exactly why. And the Raptors too. But Miami showed exactly why this team is so flawed and why I've been preaching since the beginning of this season, why I've been preaching since they lost to the Raptors last season, and why I've been preaching since Giannis has been on this team, that unfortunately, the Bucks probably won't, A, win a championship, or two, be incredibly successful as far as the winning in the postseason, because the blueprint is out on how to beat Giannis. And how to beat the Bucks? It's just like in football. When I was watching the playoffs and I was going into watching the games, I was like, the blueprint is out on how to beat Deshaun Watson. You gotta blitz the hell out of him and gotta blitz the hell out of him and pray that he doesn't make enough plays to beat you. Just like that with Giannis, the blueprint is out. And honestly, they're only fifty-two and nine because the level of competition they've been playing up to this point has been mediocre. They have not had a tough sled of games that isn't offset by a bunch of weaker East opponents. So they haven't, like LA, they haven't had to go up a whole bunch. Of, like, And this is kind of cliche to say that, oh, he plays in the East, it's weaker. But it's true. Like Giannis will play a team that's really good, like Philadelphia early in the season, that when they were clicking on all cylinders defensively, they play a team like Philadelphia and lose, but it was cushioned by playing Atlanta and Orlando and Chicago right before there. Three terrible teams, they go into playing them, and then they play Philly and lose. Or I remember earlier in the season when they lost to Dallas, I think it was their first loss on like a 15-game stretch of games, the teams they were playing weren't fantastic. And even the teams they played leading up to that loss, ironically, it was in the same situation where they were coming off of a back-to-back and then they had to go up and play Dallas. That's the ironic thing about it. But they only played Memphis and I think Cleveland. And I think, that, I think this is, they might have played New Orleans. But this is what I'm saying. They play a bunch of mediocre opponents. And then they go up against a team that is good and can give them a run for their money. And what happens is they lose. It happens every time. Go look at their schedule. And... Before I get into that, before I dive real deep in how the blueprint is out, to be honest, and how they're such a, I don't like using the term overrated because that's that's a harsh term. It's, it sounds rude, but they're overrated. So before I get into how their 52-9 and nine record currently as it's standing is overrated, I'm going to break down how Miami beat the Bucks. It's really simple how they did it. Three steps, watching the entire game, extremely simple how they did it. So 
what they did is for the most, majority of the game, they were in a 3-2 zone. But it wasn't just a traditional 3-2 zone. Within their zone, whenever Giannis got the ball, not in the perimeter, but got the ball inside the perimeter, and not even really inside the perimeter, it was within 15 feet. Because what they do know about Giannis is that Giannis is good with a head full of steam. So they, what they tried to limit him doing is getting a head full of steam on fast breaks and get, getting a head full of steam in fast courts and front in the front court. And they also limited back cuts, easy cuts to the rim, stuff like that. That's why the 3-2 zone was working so well, because they don't have a guy who can just stand in the middle of the zone and just break it all apart. Now, it's so easy because they run a 5-out, too. That's really, I don't know why more teams don't do that against the Bucks. When you're running a 5-out, just run a 3-2, and then whatever. I'm thinking way too rationally about this. Anyways, what they did was they ran a 3-2 zone, and when Giannis got the ball within 15 feet, they would have a guy immediately shadow his right, and they'd have a guy immediately shadow his left. And what that does is it gets guys after Giannis early and often, because what Giannis wants to do is he wants to get his inside shoulder on your inside shoulder and move you out of his way so he can dunk. When you send more guys at him, he can't do what he wants to do. He struggles trying to get his shot off. And now what you're forcing Giannis to do is pass the ball. And now I understand a lot of people think Giannis is a very good passer. He's not. He can pass the ball. He has solid court vision, but Giannis does not make decisions fairly quickly. Giannis happens to get into this habit where he is so big and so strong and he's bigger and stronger than everybody who's guarding him. He thinks he can just get his way and he's not always looking to pass. There were multiple instances in this Miami game where they would set up that wall where there'd be three guys right in front of Giannis on a fast break and he couldn't go anywhere. And then he would still try and just bully a guy like Bam Adebayo out the way, who he's just not just bigger and stronger than Bam Adebayo is a really solid built dude. But then in the meantime, there'd be a guy standing in the corner or on the wing where if Giannis had the same court vision as a guy like LeBron, LeBron would make that pass. He would drive and immediately, as soon as he saw the defender to his most left or whatever, whatever, whichever way is the guy that's most open, LeBron would immediately kick that ball and a guy would get an open look, whether it goes in or goes out or doesn't. Not up to LeBron, not up to Giannis. But Giannis doesn't process the game as quickly as a guy like LeBron. I, so many times watching this game, I would look and say like, oh man, LeBron would make that pass. And it sounds like I really like LeBron. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really like watching LeBron play. Just, I don't know what it is about LeBron, but it's, it's fascinating. He'd think he's one of the three greatest players of all time, but I don't really find watching LeBron as interesting as watching some people. Like I'd rather watch a healthy John Wall or, oh my gosh, a prime Russell Westbrook. It's or Kevin Durant. Oh my God. Maybe it's just cause I, I'm, I really like the mid range shot. What LeBron does is more driving to the rim with your head down. He's just bigger, faster, stronger, smarter than everybody else. So, like, look, you know what LeBron is going to do. You cannot stop LeBron James. You just have to pray he's having a quote-unquote off night. Other guys, I like watching them just work at their craft. I don't know. I'm, I like the nuances to the game more than just going in knowing LeBron is going to be great every night. I, I don't know. I like, I like surprises. But whatever. Anyways, so that's number one. Get after Giannis early and often. Send as many guys, as many bodies as you can after him. And why that really worked is because Miami had the bodies. When I was talking about the NBA at the halfway mark, I was like, Miami is going for this two seed because of the moves they made to get Andre Iguodala and Jay Crowder. Not because they'll all be on the court at the same time and they'll run the same kind of small ball lineup as Houston, which honestly could work running one of the guys at the four and bam Matabayo at the five he can play that it would work but it was because I knew that they could throw all those bodies at different guys like imagine if the heat play the Lakers and there's a switch and you're switching from Jay Crowder to Andre Iguodala you're switching from Andre Iguodala to Jay Crowder you're switching from Jay Crowder to Jimmy Butler you're switching from Jimmy Butler down to the Bam Adebayo who can guard you on the perimeter like that is a lot of bodies to throw at somebody and I know Giannis struggles when you throw that many bodies at him that they ain't, they ain't no slouch like Jay Crowder is a tough dude Jay Crowder's not going down without a fight Bam Adebayo definitely not going down with a fight and everybody and their mama know Jimmy Butler's not going down without a fight so that's why I really like the moves that they made at the tread deadline so that is the first point I have now second Build a wall in transition. I touched on that when I was talking about my first point. What they did 
when they would miss a shot and not get the rebound, they would only have two guys crash the basket. Three other people would already be heading back in transition to stop the break. And what they would do is they would find Giannis. If it was anybody else, no matter who was taking it up the court, they would just send one guy after him. Because everybody on the court knew they are looking for Giannis to score in transition. So what the Heat did is they would find Giannis, send two guys closer to his side of the court. So just in case he got the ball, they would build a wall to stop him from getting to the lane. And if he did end up getting the ball in transition, they would send a third guy over there just so he could not do anything. And it was genius because they know he does not process the game extremely fast to make incredibly accurate passes and quick pinches. Fantastic idea. And number three, and this was probably the most important point because it ties in points one and two, hustle. At no point in this game did the Miami Heat not have their foot on their necks or not have their foot on the gas. They gave it their all every single time down the court. And that was probably the most important and the most valuable thing that they could have done. Because even when Giannis would kick it out to an open guy, and they missed. Yeah, they didn't have a great night shooting from three. Even when he would make the right decision and kick it to the right guy, the Heat were closing out. They were sprinting to the guy who was wide open and jumping and trying to get a contest. That's why. That's part of the reason why they shot so poorly from three. They did get a few good looks, but Miami was trying to contest every single thing they could. They did not want to leave any opportunities for wide open three-pointers, or they wanted to limit it as much as possible. And while I can acknowledge that Miami shot an absurd rate from three. It is an otherworldly percentage from three. I think at halftime they were shooting almost 60% from three, which probably won't happen for other teams. I will also acknowledge that the blueprint has been out there. The Raptors have done it successfully, and that might be maybe in part because they have the same amount of guys that they can just throw at Giannis and employ that same game plan. But also... Hustle. It's kind of just what it comes down to. Both of those teams, every time they play Giannis, they play extremely hard while they do this game plan. And while it probably won't happen that another team will shoot, I think it was they finished like 48% on the game from three. I can acknowledge that probably won't happen again. But what you can imitate is the kind of defense, the style of defense that these teams are playing. That unquestionably, this kind of aggression and this kind of collapsing style of defense that you can take Giannis out of the game and then try and rely on Chris Middleton and make him defer to Dante DiVincenzo or Eric Bledsoe, you're not winning the game if Dante DiVincenzo is going to be your first scoring option because even Chris Middleton shot like four of 16. It was just an all-around bad game. And Honestly, this is what I see every time I see them in the playoffs. I said, I wish I had a podcast at the end of the last playoffs because I was always talking to my friends. And I was like, in the offseason, I know that they are probably going to let go of Brogdon and give Middleton a lot of money because Milwaukee seems like the kind of guys that they want to keep guys around Giannis that he likes. And I know that Giannis really likes Chris Middleton and they are probably going to throw him a bag. And uh, they did. They gave him... I don't even know how much they gave him. I think it was like $72 million. But I was looking at the deal and I was like, actually, no, I think it was like north of $100 million. But regardless, I, it was terrible because Chris Middleton has proved that he cannot take over when Giannis is that not there. Giannis needs another superstar with him or at least above star caliber player. I know Chris Middleton is an all-star, all of that. But he is not that kind of guy that you can put next to Giannis. And he'll step up because Chris Middleton goes crazy freezing cold and for long stretches of games and it is bewildering to me that they re-signed him and kept Eric Bledsoe because Eric Bledsoe has dropped duds in the past three playoffs and they extended him I, I think that's who they ended up giving the 70 million dollars to I think they gave Chris Middleton like 130 or something like that that extension on Eric Bledsoe is going to kill it is going to kill the Bucks in the playoffs because he has shown consistently that he cannot show up. That is unfortunate in the case of the Bucks. But however, unless they're going to trade him and try and get somebody else to pair alongside Middleton and then have another score and that, that way they have a big three instead of a big two. It's quiet. I don't know. And why I'm, I was so excited for the month of March, why I wanted to touch on this and why I'm actually glad that the Bucks did lose and we have the opportunity to talk about this is because March is going to tell us a lot 
about who the Bucks are as a team. They could easily go from a 70-win team to a team that maybe wins 63 games. And why is that? Because the month of March is going to be the hardest slate of games they have had all year. They don't have that slate where they go up against Cleveland, Chicago, New Orleans without Zion, and then they face a good team. No. Starting on Wednesday, they have to go play Indiana, then they go to L.A. and play the Lakers. Then after that, they have an easy game against Phoenix. This is literally all I've memorized. Now I'm just going to read off the rest of the schedule. Then they have to play Denver, Boston, easy game at Golden State. Then they have to play Miami. Memphis was in a slouch. Then they get two easy games where they get to play Washington and Detroit. Then they have to go play Houston. And then they get another easy game, just one. And then they have to go play Dallas. That's the end of March. And then for the first week of April, they have to play Toronto at home, Toronto on the road. Then they have to go on the road, play Boston. Then they have to go on the road and play Philadelphia. This next month and extra week is going to tell us so much about who the Bucks truly are. I think that if the Bucks can't show us that they are better than an 11, and because I think they have 21 games left in the season, they would have to win more than 11 games for them to break 63 wins. If they go 11 and 10 down the stretch, that tells me everything I need to know about this Bucks team and who they'll be in the playoffs. More than enough information about who they'll be. But if they can pull out maybe 15, 16 wins, I'll concede and say I was wrong. Do I think they will do that? Absolutely not. Because the slate of games that they have and the amount of easy games that they have in between their harder games is not the same as what it was early in the season. Early in the season, they'd have a bunch of easier Eastern Conference matchups that would lead into a harder game. That way they had time to prepare. Giannis would only be paying 27 minutes, putting up his numbers. Last night, Giannis had to play 31 minutes, and Coach Budenholzer took him out at like the seven-minute mark. So at that point, they just kind of threw in the white flag. So I was like, well... This month of March is really going to tell us a lot about the Bucks. I can't wait to see it. I don't really hope for the worst to anybody. I just want to see if the Bucks can prove me wrong and not be a 500 team down their hardest stretch of the season. Now I'm done. I'm done talking about the NBA. Uh, I'm going to move on to the combine stuff. So if you t- I put this in the front just because I know more people like hearing me talk basketball than they do draft stuff that doesn't really matter as much. So I put that at the front. If you're done listening, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm going to go ahead and switch to the combine, my combine takeaways. And I thought this was a really good combine. I don't really buy too much into how much or how well a person performs at the combine if their tape doesn't match up to the production that I saw on the field. I like to take the tape and then I like to add it or I like to add the combine on top of it, kind of like the, in the NBA where you have an all-star vote and the fan vote only counts for like 25% and 75% is everybody else. That's where I'm at. 75% of it for me is the tape. 25% of it is the combine. That boosts your overall draft profile, in my opinion. So I'm just going to break it down by day. I feel like that's easier for everybody to keep track with instead of just picking and choosing and going along. I feel like this is just way easier. So day one, start with the quarterbacks. For me, not much change here. My top five quarterbacks are quite literally all the same. So uh, Burrow at number one, the Tua at number two, the uh, Herbert at three solidified it with his combine performance. He looked great. He was fantastic. He's been that for me all season long. Uh, my quarterback number four is still Anthony Gordon. He looked great all combine. He's continuing to progress, plus getting better footwork in the combine. I did still see where he had that habit of standing tall in the back of the pocket, not really moving his feet too much, and then delivering the ball. He's still got to clean that up. I don't think that'll work in the NFL. And then my quarterback five is still Jacob Eason. Both him and Herbert had a really good day slinging the rock down the field. I thought NFL teams would love that, and in my opinion, I thought it looked good. Jacob Eason still needs to clean up a little bit of his accuracy, but overall, he looked good. After that is where things start to change. So... My quarterback six is now a quarterback you have probably never heard of in your entire life. His name is Jake Luton out of Oregon State. I finally finished his tape and then I saw the combine from him and I like him because of how high his floor is. 
and I know that sounds weird. A lot of people like guys because of how high their ceilings are. Like people are falling in love with Jordan Love, ironic, because of how high his ceiling is. People don't really care that his floor is really low. He threw a lot of interceptions. People don't care about that. People see his traits and the kind of flashes of talent that he has, and they're falling in love with the kind of person he can be. I like to take people for what they are. I'm the most face value person you will probably ever meet. You tell me who you are, I will believe you. Jake Luton's tape tells me who he is in the combine. His talent told me what he was. He's extremely consistent. Like it is oddly consistent. He played four years uh, for and at the D1 level. He was a JUCO transfer. He went to Idaho his first year, got hurt, transferred to JUCO, then came back, transferred to Oregon State. And he's been consistent. He has never thrown more than four interceptions in his entire, like in a single season in his entire career. If I would have said entire career, it would sound wrong. But every season, he's never thrown more than four interceptions in a single season. And that's kind of what you get from him. You get a really consistent guy that makes good decision. He makes quick, accurate throws, has some solid power. He struggles only going down the field. But at the combine, I didn't really see that. He didn't have a noodle arm. Like, he wasn't lacking power like the ball got there the ball had some nice spin on it so I was like okay well you're moving up my board for that I can definitely get behind that and then also his measurements are really good he's six foot six 224 224 pounds the weight doesn't really bother me because he has the frame to put on more weight so he can get up there into that maybe 240 pound range because he's not extremely mobile he does kind of sit in the pocket even though he has a little bit of legs under him so he can definitely put some more weight on and then he also has almost 11 inch hands, which for some reason people care about hand size so much. I don't really buy into it that much as long as your hands aren't smaller than, well, I have like 10 inch, 11 inch hands. So that's not really fair. But as long as your hands aren't like baby size, like seven, eight inches, I don't really buy into hand size that much. But he's also really smart, makes great decisions. So I like his floor. I like how high his floor is. And when I start getting into this QB six range, I'm not looking at starting caliber guys these are more backups maybe eventually could become a starter guys or could get you out of a pinch and then number seven my quarterback number seven is now Jalen Hurts uh, he was extremely polished at the combine he showed off a lot of his athleticism and natural throwing ability but I only moved him up to number seven because a lot of the concerns about him are on the field not in a completely open field it's just like like most of the, like a lot of people are saying Jordan Love had a fantastic combine because he looked good in what he did. But in reality, Jordan Love's problems are not making a throw when a guy's wide open. It is his decision making. The things that happen in the middle of a game are the reason Jordan Love is not great. But now, since we are talking about Jordan Love, he is my QB eight. I don't have him like all the way out of my QB rankings. That'd be disrespectful to have him there. But he had a good combine. I get it. I don't care. His film is bad. I don't know what. I don't know why people are saying, "Oh, but the traits, but the traits, but the traits have resulted in absolutely nothing." His film is not good. His seventeen interceptions were not because the receivers were dropping balls or anything like that. They were because he made a lot of bad decisions and you can't teach good decision-making. You also can't teach being on time and on target. He had a lot of throws where the receivers caught it, but they weren't on time. A lot of balls were behind him. He also had a few balls where the receiver couldn't even catch it, but I don't really care that much about that. I care about what happens when you're actually on the field. That's what I care about more. And my quarterback number nine, is Jake Fromm. He clearly had the worst day out of all of the quarterbacks. If you watch the combine, you know that. And I don't really care though, but I don't really care because I don't look at Jake Fromm as a starting caliber quarterback. Jake Fromm, when you look at his tape and look at everything from him, he is a backup. He screams average Joe. Everything about him is average. His decision-making is average. His arm is average. You could even say it's below average after that combine. Everything he does is just okay, and that's what you saw from the combine. He had an okay arm. The ball consistently didn't have enough spin on it. It didn't have enough oomph on it to get down the field, get to receivers. He underthrew a lot of balls on the go routes. Uh, he wasn't incredibly accurate, but that's not what you want from Jake Fromm. You're not looking for a franchise quarterback from Jake Fromm. You're still looking for a guy who can just be a career backup and I don't know. He's just a game manager. I feel like a lot of people aren't looking at it through the right lens. They're looking at it through a guy who can lead a franchise one day. And Jake Fromm just is not that guy. 
And uh, anything after my quarterback nine is kind of a waste of time explaining to you guys. So I'm not I'm not even going to do it. Like, I don't even think you care after my quarterback nine. So we're going to go ahead and move on to wide receivers and tight ends. So for day on day one, wide receivers and tight ends, as far as tight ends go, not too many caught my eye. So Albert Okoyekpanam, he had a 40 time that teams will probably love. He had a 4-4-9. And a, a lot of teams are going to try and get him into the seams. But I don't really know his injury history. I got to go back and look that up, see what his injury is or he's talking about. Because the last thing you want to do is draft a guy like Evan Ingram, who was fast coming out of college. Uh, I think Evan Ingram ran a way better 40. I think he was almost sub 4-4. But the last thing you want to do is draft a guy like him, but he can't stay healthy. But I do think people will love his 40 time. Uh, my main man, Charlie Tomopeo, he had a solid 40 time. It wasn't blazing fast. It was like a 4-7 flat which isn't incredible, not bad, especially for a guy his size. He only, he's only 6'2", but he's he's stockly, he's he's pretty well built. But he had a good workout. He had a really good workout. I don't, I think he dropped like one ball and it's because he slipped. But other than that, he had a really good workout. But for me, I already knew about him. You guys, if you listen to me, then you definitely know about him. And the last guy that I, I looked at who was like, oh, he, yeah, okay, I can buy into that was Adam Troutman. He had some solid fluidity. He actually had a really good three-cone time, and that builds on top of a strong senior bowl that he had a, about a month ago. So good for him. But then as for disappointments, uh, Jared Pigney had a rough day all around. He might have played himself into being an undrafted player. I don't even know if teams will pick him up on the free agent market. And then I think outside of that, it was really nothing about yeah, tight ends were relatively boring. Of Mitchell Wilcox, he had a terrible day. He got hit in the head with a ball. He, I think he got stuck with like two balls. He dropped every ball in like one drill. It was all bad. But I don't even think anybody knew who Mitchell Wilcox was going into the thing. But anyways, and then uh, for wide receivers, all this, all the combine did for me was confirm that the amount of depth in this wide receiver class is is real. Like there, I really have nothing but positive things to say about this wide receiver class. Um, there were four clear winners, though. Chase Claypool out of Notre Dame. If you didn't know, he ran that ridiculous 40 time. Uh, and then Donovan Peoples-Jones out of Michigan, Denzel Mims out of Baylor, and Justin Jefferson out of LSU. I believe all of these guys, the four guys that is named, have at least secured their spots as day two guys, bare minimum. And I think Justin Jefferson could be a day one guy, like, honestly. I think he could be a day one guy. I def- you definitely see it in his tape. And then that, that 40-yard dash that he ran, that, that, that really did a lot for his draft stock. Uh, good for him. And then I'm not sure uh, where the 40-yard dash for Claypool came from because the guy is huge. Uh, everybody compared him to Calvin Johnson just because of his raw size and speed. And this wasn't coming into the draft. This was after he ran the 4-4 40-yard dash. And I was like, he's six foot four. 240 pounds and his tape is not bad but he doesn't run that fast I don't see that kind of athleticism on his tape his tape does not say 442 I could understand the 41 inch vert but it doesn't look like he jumps that high to get the ball because he's he's huge like he had a really good season they get like a thousand yards or like 1300 yards and 13 touchdowns but he you just don't see 44 speed on his tape at all but that is very good to know that he's he has 4-4 speed at 6'4", 240 pounds, and a 41-inch vert to go with that. His draft stock definitely is going up. People were saying that he should be a tight end coming into the combine, leaving the combine. People are going to want him as a receiver. Good for him. And then Denzel Mims falls into that exact same category because you watch his tape. You don't see any of four three eight speed like at all or f- sub four six seven. Fluidity. I mean, not four, six, seven, sub six, seven fluidity on his three cone. You don't see that kind of fluidity in his tape because every time you watch him, he's catching high point balls and he's like they run so many fade routes in the red zone with this dude and he'll go up and get it. So when you look at his tape, you're like, oh, he's a jump ball receiver because the guy's six three two twenty, and that's how Baylor used him. So you think, oh, okay, well that's what he is. That's what we'll take it for. And then he goes into the combine and runs a four three eight. And runs a six 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 in his three cone drill, and you're like, "Oh my gosh, Baylor really underutilized this dude." 
And that's why I am so shocked about Denzel Mims because he is so good at what Baylor asked him to do. I know an NFL offense can take the talents that he has and utilize him in a completely different way and turn him into a different kind of beast. Good for him. His draft stock is going up. And then Donovan Peoples-Jones, uh, he, he proved that he is a product of, one, a bad offense when they had Pep Hamilton as their offensive coordinator, and two, bad quarterback play because he went into the combine and checked every single box in the athletic drills. He ran a 4 5 40, almost broke a combine record with his 44 and a half inch vertical. And he also did not drop a single ball all day. His tracking was incredible. He did not catch the ball with his body. His hands are great. So he definitely proved that the fact that he's never had an 1,000 yard season is only a product of the offense that he was in. And then uh, I don't have any negatives to say. A lot of people are saying that Jalen Rager and LaVisca Chenault are losers for the combine. Uh, I honestly think that Chenault is a winner because he ran a 4-5 with a core muscle injury. He, You can tell that he's fast. You can tell that if he was healthy, he probably would have ran like a 4-3. And then for Jalen Rager, like people say that he was slow or uh, I don't, since when is a four four seven slow? Like his tapes looks his, his tape looks really fast. Like he like I've seen like the advanced numbers. He's hit twenty two miles an hour before in a game, which is Tyreek Hill level speeds. So it's understandable that people thought he was going to come in and run times that would be comparable with Henry Ruggs. But no, he ran a four four seven, and people are acting like that's bad. Four four seven is really fast. Like that's that's not that's not no slouch speed. That's that's really good, but. Hey, whatever. I mean, eh, I don't, I don't really buy into it because the rest of his physicals are great. He did fine catching the ball. I don't really buy into that. Uh, now day two. So day two started with, I think it started with O-Lyman, but the way I wrote it down, I went ahead and wrote running backs first because that was the position that I was like, ah, okay, this is the easiest to do first. And I was looking and I was like, okay, just like the wide receivers, I have mainly positive things to say about these guys. So... Jonathan Taylor, still my RB1, and then all the other guys that followed after him, Cam Akers, A.J. Dillon, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Keyshawn Vaughn, DeAndre Swift, all looked incredible, all had really good days. A lot of them had better hands than I thought. I didn't see many drops, especially Jonathan Taylor. He gets a round of applause because his hands are way better than the tape says. He had a lot of concerning drops on his tape in the combine, didn't drop it. I still don't buy into it that much, but I'm glad he didn't drop a ball. It would be a, more of a concern if he did, but he didn't. Good for him. And it kind of makes me wish that J.K. Dobbins would have performed with this incredible group of backs and had all like my top three backs performing. That would have been a really, really cool competitive combine, but he didn't. It's okay. Hopefully he does something at his pro day. But uh, other than that, I was really impressed with Clyde Edwards-Hilaire and DeAndre Swift's footwork. So both of them, those guys out of the backfield really remind me a lot of Christian McCaffrey and their ability to run routes. So even though they have less running ability, like in between the tackles than Jonathan Taylor, the, the what they can do with their route running ability in their hands, catching the ball at the backfield, I think one of these guys will go before Jonathan Taylor. If I had to guess, I'd say DeAndre Swift would go before Jonathan Taylor just because of what he can do out of the backfield. Jonathan Taylor is the better runner of the football, but... DeAndre Swift and Clyde Edwards-Hilaire looked so good out of the backfield in those in those catching drills. And then I actually had some biggest surprises. Um, I'd never heard of either of these two guys. Jet Anderson out of TCU and Darrington Evans out of Appalachian State. Never heard of them pre-combine. But I was just like, I usually, I kind of just watch the combine casually. Like I'll pour a bowl of cereal and then just turn on the combine and chill. Like, and then just like have a pen and some paper out and take some notes. And, but I was like, who are these two guys? Because Jed, Jed Anderson, he he's slow. Like, he ran at 4.6140, but his his burst speed, like, his quickness and his short area quickness was ridiculous. So I, I was just looking, and I was like, this, this kid is pretty twitchy. He doesn't have breakaway speed like a guy like Jonathan Taylor or Keyshawn Vaughn, but he is extremely twitchy. He had an incredible... Um, what is the drill? 20-yard shuttle. He had an incredible 20-yard drill. His 10-yard split will probably be fantastic, but he gets off the line really quick. He has some really good quick twitch ability, and he was also really good in the pass-catching drill, so I need to go look at his tape. And then Darrington Evans all around just had a fantastic day, so I definitely have to get to the tape on both of these guys. And then the rest of day two, O-Lyman. 
after the combine, I fully expect offensive linemen, especially the tackles, uh, really the top guys, whether interior or off- offensive tackles, I expect them to go early and often after how they performed in this combine. Uh, that includes Tristan Wirth, Jedrick Wills, Makai Becton, Andrew Thomas, and Josh Jones. They were all fantastic. Add Ezra Cleveland to that list because Ezra Cleveland also had a fantastic combine, and especially with the physical stuff. And I do think that, however, that teams are going to fall in love more with Tristan Wirfs and Makai Becton because of how well they performed in the combine, even though I still have Andrew Thomas as my top tackle on the board just because of how sound he is. And he's so, he's so smooth. His game is incredibly smooth. Uh, if, if you don't notice, I've, I really like I'll get I'll probably get back to this when I talk about the corners. I love a guy who everything he does is just smooth. It doesn't look like he's forcing anything. It doesn't look like he's trying. I just love a guy who's just really smooth and his pass protection are really smooth and whatever he's doing, whether that's turning your hips when you're a corner or your footwork is just real smooth. I, I like that in my football players. It just everything looks real natural. But I do think guys will fall in love with the physicals from Worse and Beckton more than what Wills and Thomas produce, even though they all honestly had a great combine i honestly don't think you can go wrong with any of them um the guy outside of like my top few i just mentioned him ezra cleveland out of boise state great day fantastic day the only guy that i didn't really like as far as the tackle was isaiah wilson because just like his tape uh isaiah wilson if he doesn't get his hands on you at the point of attack he can't really do much with you. he's not very fast not very mobile but if you put him in a position where he can just get get your hands on you real quick he'll be good he'll he'll be good so i'm not really worried about that but from the interior offensive lineman, the entire Michigan interior offensive line, for some reason, just looked good. And this sounds so homerish. I try and be as objective as possible because like, I'll tell you if somebody sucks. Like, I don't really care about that. Like, I'm not going to just say somebody sucks on here. Like, that's, that's kind of raw. But, like, if, if, I don't, if I think somebody's game is lacking something, like, Shea Patterson, I think his game is lacking in a lot of areas. Like, I'll, I'll say that. Like, I have no problem saying that at all. But the Michigan offensive line, which a lot of people are high on Cesar Ruiz, but I, I, I've i heard so many more people getting hot, real high on Ben Bredesen and uh, Michael Onwena, the both of the interior linemen for Michigan. They all performed really well in the combine. Cesar Ruiz easily has the best tape out of all of them. But as far as Bredesen and Onwena, you can't really find glaring holes in their game. So I think people will start to move them up their boards as far as offensive interior linemen, and they'll probably end up going earlier day three or even later day two. I I don't know. It beats me, but I did like what they did at the combine. And then, of course, Natani Musi, even though he didn't do any of the drills, he almost broke the combine record. He said he probably would have broke it easily if he would have got to warm up a little bit. But he did 44 reps on the bench press, which is ridiculous because everybody says that he is a mountain of a man, and he is a legend in the workout room. Even people said that he is able to bench press a moose. After doing 44 reps of 225 pounds, I wholeheartedly believe it, because if you've never lifted 225 in your, in your life, believe me, it is heavy. It's, it's not easy to do at all. I could probably do it five times, and then i start crying. It's, it's, it's not fun. But anyways, after that, uh, Jonah Jackson continued to impress me. Uh, I really, really like Jonah Jackson out of Ohio. I like all that Ohio State offensive line, honestly. They gave Justin Fields so much time to, to throw, and it, I don't know. I, they're, they're just really good. And then as far as losers, I, don't, I really don't like saying losers, but people who didn't perform well at the combine. Uh, Calvin Throckmorton has easily played himself out of being drafted like at all. He got abused in the senior bowl. He got abused the last two games of the season, and he has not looked good doing anything honestly he he's slow he's not very good I mean you can put him in center if you're going to do anything that requires the least amount of athleticism but he did not look good he has not looked good for a very long time now and then uh Noah Stenberg he he's probably draft stock dropped to maybe day three guy but he just didn't look really good he didn't really look really comfortable I don't know maybe it was nerves but he just didn't really look relatively good during the combine. Now we're moving on to day three because I'm not talking about special teams or kickers or punters. Day three is linebackers. Uh, we're going to start out with the one everybody and their mom knew was going to do good. 
Isaiah, Isaiah Simmons won everybody over with his 40-yard dash and then got a call from his agent, packed it up. That's what you're supposed to do. Ran that 439, secured the bag. Good for you. Top five pick still, in my opinion. Uh, this is an edge guy, but Zach Bond is continuing to build off of a very strong senior bowl and a very strong senior season out of Wisconsin. Fantastic. Uh, another guy that caught my eye, I've never heard of this guy ever in my life. Dante Olsen uh, out of Montana. He showcased some really good footwork and some really good hip fluidity. So I'll be sure to go and watch his tape because I've never heard of the guy ever in my life. But uh, way to represent from Montana. Go you. And then Carter Coughlin out of Minnesota. Uh, I usually usually guys stand out to me when I'm like watching other people's tape. Like I was watching uh, Shaquille Quarterman's tape earlier in the season and then that's how I found out who Gregory Rousseau was uh, for Miami and I was looking at him I was like oh my gosh like Gregory Rousseau is so good let's see, let's see what, what year is he oh he's a freshman okay he'll come out in a year or two so that's how I found out about him but I didn't really see Carter Coughlin on Minnesota's tape when I was watching Antoine Winfield and he's he was he was pretty good so I'm gonna go back and watch some Carter Coughlin tape if I can find it I might have to reach out to Minnesota to see if I can get that but yeah, Carter Coughlin definitely looked good in a lot of the drills. Like most of the drills, Carter Coughlin looked really good. And then uh, same applies for Jacob Phillips out of LSU. He got overshined by Patrick Queen. But yeah, Jacob Phillips, not in the combine during the regular season, especially towards the end of the season. But yeah, Jacob Phillips looked pretty good in all of his drills. Also, shout out to Willie Gay out of Mississippi State. A lot of people caught on to how good of a day he had at the combine. And then as far as uh, guys I didn't like, Michael Divinity was buns. I don't know what it is about. Well, maybe I can give him the benefit of the doubt. He was away for the team for a while. Maybe he wasn't working out. Maybe he wasn't doing what he should have, but he looked slow. Didn't have any explosiveness at all. He didn't have Ben doing any of the edge rushing drills. He didn't have any good footwork. Didn't have any hip fluidity. It was, it was all bad, but I don't know. Maybe at the pro day, he'll look better, but he did not look good at all at the combine. Then we're going to go ahead and move to D lineman. Jordan Elliott, the defensive tackle from Mizzou, continuing to move on my board. I wish I could put him at DT2, but Javon Kinlaw's tape is still strong. Derek Brown's tape is still strong as ever. Jordan Elliott is right there with him, though. Jordan Elliott is my defensive tackle number three in this draft. He is still continuing to move up my board after this this combat because he looked so good everything he did was just so easy and so natural it was like yeah man all right i can, I can get behind that i can buy into that and then uh neville gallimore out of oklahoma looked like a real athlete he had really good hit uh really good footwork he needs to get some more fluidity and smoothness into his game he was like even though he had good footwork and he looked like a real athlete it wasn't always like extremely smooth. Like sometimes it looked like he was kind of forcing it. If he can get some fluidity in there, I can definitely get behind him as being a second round or early third round pick. I'd be hard pressed to find him falling into the third round. And then Derek Brown, of course, he showed off some real violence with his hands. Like a lot of people are saying that he didn't particularly test well, but he's a 300 pound guy running a 5'1 or 5'1 flat. Like that's, that's pretty good. And what I look for in my defensive lineman is how violent are you how much pressure does it look like you can generate with your hands and moving guys out the way I wish I knew what his bench press was because I don't know how strong he is but man the guy looked like he can really disrupt things with his hands so good for him and then Jason Matabuke I'm also out of Mississippi State he really had a good day and then two guys that um never heard of well, actually I've heard of one guy I watched all of Alex Highsmith's tape really good I think he's still raw but he definitely has the physical tools that if you put him on a team with a very good d-line coach you could turn him into something for your team and if all else fails put him on special teams because the guy's fast and then a guy I've never heard of uh Ladarius Hamilton out of North Texas I don't know who you are but your combine was fantastic I'm going to go back and watch your tape if it looks good I will Definitely advocate for you. I try and advocate for more lesser known guys, but yeah, Ladarius Hamilton out of North Texas. Good for you, man. You had a really good combine. I was only uh, disappointed in one guy, then another guy looked just looked real stiff. Uh, AJ Epinesa, he didn't look quick at all. He didn't really have a burst, and he looked kind of stiff in that one drill where you got to do the rip, the spin, and then you got to go after the quarterback like you're trying to knock the ball loose. He didn't really look good in that drill at all. So I was disappointed in that. And then uh, Jabari Zuniga out of Florida. 
Uh, also re- looked really stiff in all of his drift. I'm not sure if it, that was nerves or technique or whatever that's about. But, yeah, so that was something. But then um, go ahead and move on to day four. And this is defensive backs. This is easily my favorite day just because Deion Sanders and Jamal Adams are calling play-by-plays for everybody. And if you look bad, they're going to let you know you look bad. And it is fantastic. Last year, I think it was literally just Deion Sanders, but this year they added Jamal Adams. Perfect. You did it perfectly. Have them back every year. That's fantastic. And even do that for other positions too. Have two guys that just naturally talk about what's going on. I feel like that helps the audience out better. And it also makes it a more enjoyable viewing experience. So good job on that. Kudos. I'm just going to go ahead and lump all the defensive backs together. So this is including safeties and corners. Nickels, too. But I really loved a lot of these guys. Like, honestly, a couple guys I haven't watched the tape on. Like, But, like, all the guys I haven't watched the tape on are people that it's just, like, come out of nowhere. Like, John Reed out of Penn State, never heard of the guy. Like, I don't know why. Because he looked really good. Everything he did was so fluid, so smooth. He looked like a really natural corner. Uh, his footwork, his hip fluidity, the way he flipped his hips on most of the drills where he had to make a really quick cut, all really natural, all really smooth. John Reed had a great day. Jeff of Cuda, of course. Christian Fulton out of LSU. Fantastic day. CJ Henderson, everybody was raving over him at the combine of how easy he made everything look. And yeah, he, he made everything look really, really easy. Good for him. And then Jalon Johnson out of Utah, really good corner. I feel like a really underrated corner. I don't know how NFL teams do him. I'm more connected with college more than anything. Like, I got plenty of plugs for college. But NFL, no, not so much. I wish I knew how NFL teams view Jalen Johnson. But he had a really good combine. I appreciate what he did on the field. And then Antoine Winfield Jr. out of Minnesota. He won the day for safeties for me. Um, I wish McKinney and Delpit would have performed. But I understand Delpit still fighting an ankle injury. No clue why McKinney didn't perform. But Winfield Jr. definitely won over the day for me. Tanner Muse and Kayvon Wallace out of Clemson. Fantastic days. Tanner Muse caught everybody off guard with that 40-yard dash he ran. I didn't know he had a track background. I'm going to have to go back and check bro out. But he ran damn near 4-3. And I was looking at him like, oh, okay. I see you, bro. Good good for you, man. And I remember Deion Sanders made the joke about, this is the second year any joke. He made a joke about, oh, damn, like, nobody saw that coming from a guy that looks like him just because he happens to be Caucasian. And I was like, ah, yeah. Well, no one was going to say it, but we were all thinking. But, yeah, Tanner Muse and Kayvon Wallace both looked really good in their drills. Tanner Muse looked mad athletic, but he was also good in his drills. They both had really good ball skills. Uh, so that was great. That was enjoyable. And then there were a couple guys that just had okay days, in my opinion. I'm still not very high on Darnay Holmes. Like, a lot of people – like his physical traits he's extremely fast he's a twitchy guy but he's still very raw in my opinion he's not fully there developed as a corner which he still had a good day but the there's still some things you got to work out still some tightness still kind of stiff doing certain things got to get that worked out but he did have an okay day and then jeff gladney at a tcu didn't do anything bad didn't do anything good but you saw him and you were like okay I see why people are giving him that second-round grade. So I just want to give his name a mention. But nothing head-turning from those guys. And then for safeties, Aloha Gilman had a solid day. Like, there were times where I was looking at him, and I was like, okay, that's impressive. And then there were times where I was like, eh, meh. So I'll call that an okay day. And then Jeremy Chin also had a very solid day. Now, I'm really down on... One guy that people really liked, uh, and this was Kyle Duggar out of Lenore Ryan. Last time I brought up his name, I had no clue how to pronounce the school's name. I didn't even know what the school was. Thought it was made up like Hogwarts. But yeah, out of Lenore Ryan, uh, he, I'm kind of down on him because of how much he was hyped up as this uh, superior athlete. And I thought that was going to overshadow how raw of a player that he was. But he wasn't like his his 40-yard dash. He said he was going to run like a 4-3. He ran closer to a 4-6. And then I think I actually think he ran like a four four he was closer to a four five than it was a four six, but still wasn't a four three by any means. He didn't even look incredibly fast. And then he also wasn't 
as good as advertised. Like a lot of people say they like his film, they like what he brings. I think they just like the kind of athleticism that he brings because like what you see is, yeah, he's fast, but he's not fluid. He doesn't really understand the position. I'm not sure how long he's been playing the position. I could only find tape from this most recent year. But uh, it, it looks like he has been playing the position for an extremely long amount of time. Didn't look comfortable in any of the drills. He looked extremely stiff in all of the drills. So, yeah, that's one guy I'm down on that everybody really loves. And then another guy that I was pissed that he didn't have a good day. It sucked because I really loved his tape. It was Geno Stone out of Iowa. Iowa really produces some really polished, really good cornerbacks and defensive backs in general. But... Geno Stone just didn't look good, and I understand it's because he's not used to dropping back in really deep coverage, and he likes playing that whole underneath thing, but he didn't look comfortable doing almost anything. A couple of the footwork drills he got down, but other than that, he just didn't really look comfortable out there. I don't know what that was about. Maybe just because they were trying to take him out of his comfort zone, but yeah, he just didn't look fantastic. And then another guy that I'm uh, down on, but he didn't particularly perform bad, is A.J. Terrell out of Clemson. And that's only because he didn't show me anything new. And he wasn't bad, though. Like, he didn't have a bad day, but he had a bad last couple of games leading up to the combine and the draft process. So I feel like a lot of teams would have wanted to see something new from him. They would have wanted to be wowed by him, be like, hey, I just had a bad few games or I just had a bad game. And uh, that's just not a representation of who I am. But he didn't really show anything new. He didn't really separate himself from the pack. He didn't turn any heads. He was just kind of another corner in the draft. So I feel like a lot of people are going to have to rely on his tape and just hope that people don't really buy into those last few games of the season and just rely on his sophomore season tape and the rest of his tape because it's just he didn't show anybody anything new but uh yeah that's really all I have to say it was a good combine I can't complain about it at all I'm looking forward to guys pro days and this whole draft process I can't wait to can't wait for free agency to start either I'm really excited for this NFL offseason but um yeah that's all I've got for you guys today uh as long-winded as usual a nice lengthy podcast for you But uh, if you did listen all the way through, I appreciate each and every one of you every single time. I appreciate all your feedback. Appreciate you listening. Appreciate you sharing the podcast. As always, always am Miles Wilson. And this has been the Judgment Call Podcast. Appreciate you guys. And I'll see you when I see you. Peace out.